What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to The Flowered Path. In this episode, we'll be hearing another reading from Brother Richard on the miracles of three holy brothers from the early days of the Franciscan Order. After that, I'll be welcoming Philip Campbell back to the show, and we will talk about St. Genevieve and his historical novel about her, Matron of Paris. First, I want to thank Flowered Path patrons. Patrons and donations help me continue to make The Flowered Path and bring you more content. All patrons get regular episodes of The Flowered Path ad-free, often before they drop on the regular podcast feed. Rose and Orchid Tier patrons also get shout-outs on the show. Orchid Tier patrons get monthly merch mailings as well. To check out all of the patron options and benefits, and to help me to continue to make The Flowered Path, go to patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. You can also find a PayPal link if you want to make a one-time donation. Just click the support button at thefloweredpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says donate. And now the news. In the summer of 2023, four priests from around the state of Louisiana met in person for the first time and shared a plate of nachos. What these four men have in common is that they've each been appointed as an Episcopal delegate, a special role where they will lead the inquiry into the life of a potential saint. Father Peter Mangum, Father Taylor Reynolds, Father Mark Ledoux, and Father Travis Abadie represent the causes of eight servants of God with ties to the state of Louisiana who are now under consideration for sainthood. 
Among these eight persons are five priests, known unofficially as the Shreveport Martyrs, who died in 1873 while tending to victims of a dramatic yellow fever outbreak in Shreveport. The other candidates are Charlene Richard, a child who died of leukemia in 1959, who showed great faith and prayed diligently for others during her illness. Father Verbus Lafleur, a priest who served as a military chaplain in World War II and died at sea as a prisoner of war. And finally, August Nanko Pelefig, a humble and faithful layperson with a lifelong devotion to the League of the Sacred Heart. These eight newer candidates now stand alongside other candidates also from Louisiana, such as Mother Henriette de Lille. Mother Henriette was a woman of color who founded the Sisters of the Holy Family in 1836, now the second oldest surviving congregation of African-American religious in the United States. Mother Henriette was declared venerable in 2010, and since that time, at least two healing miracles attributed to her intercession have been put forward for consideration by the Church. Of the beautiful miracles which God wrought through the Holy Friars, Brother Lucidas the Elder, Brother Bentivoglia, and Brother Peter of Monticello. Of old, the province of the March of Ancona was adorned even as is the sky with stars by holy and exemplary friars, who like the lights of heaven have illuminated and adorned the order of St. Francis and the world by both example and doctrine. Among them was firstly Friar Lucidus the Elder, who was truly resplendent with sanctity and burning with divine charity, whose glorious tongue, informed by the Holy Ghost, reaped marvellous fruits in his preachings. Another was Friar Bentivoglio of San Severino, who was seen of Friar Massio lifted up into the air for a great space, what time he was in a prayer in the forest, by reason of which miracle Friar Massio, being then a parish priest, left his parish and became a Franciscan, and was of such great sanctity that he wrought many miracles both in his life and after his death, and his body is buried at Muro. Once, while the aforesaid friar was sojourning alone at Trabebonity to care for and serve a leper, he received orders from the bishop to depart thence and go to another place, the which place was fifteen miles distant. But not wishing to abandon that leper, with great fervour of charity he took him and set him upon his back and carried him between daybreak and the rising of the sun the whole of that fifteen miles, even to the place whither he was sent, which is called Monte San Vicino, the which journey, had he been an eagle, he could not have flown in so short a time. And at this divine miracle there was great wonder and amazement in all that country. Another was Friar Peter of Monticello, who was seen by Friar Servodio of Urbino, being then the guardian of the old place of Ancona, bodily raised from the ground five or six cubits, even unto the foot of the crucifix of the church before which he was praying. And this Friar Peter, one day when he was fasting with great devotion during the forty-day fast in honour of St. Michael the Archangel, on the last day of that fast was in the church in prayer, and was heard by a young friar who lay hidden behind the high altar to the end that he might behold some manifestation of the sanctity of his brother, speaking with St. Michael the Archangel. And the words which they spake were these, St. Michael said, Brother Peter, you have laboured faithfully for me, 
and in many ways hast you afflicted your body. Behold, I am come to console you, and that thou may ask whatever grace thou wilt, and I am willing to obtain it for thee from God. Friar Peter made answer, Most holy prince of the celestial armies, most faithful zealot of the divine honour, pitiful protector of souls, I ask of thee this grace, that thou obtain for me from God the pardon of my sins. St. Michael replied, Ask another grace, for this I shall most easily obtain for thee. And when Brother Peter asked him nothing else, the archangel concluded, For the faith and devotion which you have towards me, I will obtain for you this grace which you demand, and many others. And when their speaking was ended, the which lasted for a long time, the archangel St. Michael left, leaving Friar Peter full of consolation. Brother Richard's book, Still Points, is available now in hardcover and as an audiobook wherever you purchase your books. I'd like to welcome Philip Campbell back to the show. How are you doing tonight, Philip? I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be uh, back on again. Yeah, happy to have you. Read two of your books here in a row and very much enjoyed them both. Awesome. So I'll read your bio again. It's a little introduction in case people didn't catch your last appearance. Philip Campbell holds a BA in European history from Ave Maria University and a license in secondary education from Madonna University. He teaches history and economics for homeschool connections. Mr. Campbell is the author of the Story of Civilization series from Tan Books, Heroes and Heretics of the Reformation from Tan as well, and he has self-published several works through his publishing company, Truicon Hill Press. His writings have also appeared in such publications as the St. Austin Review, the Distributist Review. He is a regular speaker at homeschool conferences around the United States. Mr. Campbell resides in southern Michigan. Tonight, we're going to be talking about your other historical fiction book about saints, Matron of Paris, the story of St. Genevieve. Yes, and I'm so thrilled that you wanted to bring me back to talk about this one because I really love this book. This one is special to me. (laughs) Did you write this one or Wounds of Love first? I wrote Wounds of Love first, but they were immediately back to back. Like Tan, basically, we conceived these together as a pair. So we want to do a book about a, a male saint and a female saint. And basically, the week after I sent in the manuscript for Wounds of Love, I started writing this one. So there was no break between the two. So if you're choosing two saints, I mean, we had the sort of discussion about Padre Pio, about how he's sort of ubiquitous, at least in the modern Catholic Church. Yeah. Great choice. But what attracted you to the story of St. Genevieve? Well, we had considerable discussions over which female saint to do. Initially, I wanted to do St. Hildegard, and I'm hoping I still will do a book on Hildegard because she's fascinating. Oh, yeah. But one of my editors at TAN just kind of said, uh, hey, I was reading my kids, like a a little kid's book about St. Genevieve and her life was fascinating and you should look into it. And I really didn't know anything about Genevieve at all. And so I looked her up and I was just kind of blown away with the dramatic potential that her life had to be put into story form. Because even though, and we'll talk about it, this book has a lot more creative liberties than I took with Padre Pio since she lived so much longer ago. Mm -hmm. But the overall gist of the story is all historically accurate in terms of what she did. And I was just blown away by how much this woman accomplished and by all the the great people that she knew and influenced. And I I was like, 
my storyteller brain turned on and I was like, this would make a phenomenal story. And plus, I think there's an issue when you're trying to write about women saints in the history of the church. Many of them are religious women. And if you're looking at like a cloistered sister like St. Therese or Teresa of Avila, you're looking at writing a story about someone who, you know, who entered the convent and spent their life there. And while that's a, a worthy thing in the spiritual life, obviously, and we venerate those people highly, in terms of turning that into a story to tell a kid, it doesn't give you a lot to work with in terms of like a, a plot. So I'm looking for saints whose lives have something that I can make a good narrative around. And I'm still growing as an author, so I'm hoping that I can learn to tell the stories of some of these contemplative saints better. But Genevieve's story just struck me as very exciting. And I was like, yes, this is what I want to write about. Well, you mentioned to me after our interview last time, we were talking a little bit when the recording wasn't running, and you mentioned to me that this book, Matron of Paris, was your personal favorite of anything you've written. So why is that? Yeah, well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it was so unexpected. Like this, this wasn't necessarily a book I chose. Like I just said, I didn't even know who I was going to write about and someone else proposed it to me. So I kind of had the joy of discovering her afresh. And then secondly, because there was so much less known about the details of her life than Padre Pio, I felt like I could be more creative with it. And I felt like the creativity and her real story blended together so well. Padre Pio was great. There's one thing, Tim, I will never write a book about, which is like the Civil War, because there's so many people out there that study the Civil War right down to its mind where I'd be so afraid that I write and they'd be like, hey, you said 153rd Regiment and it was really 151st. Right. And, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They know every single thing about it and I would never write about that because they'd be too afraid to mess it up. But with Genevieve, there was like, it was more of like a blank canvas and I felt like I could take her life and I could really think about the spiritual themes that I wanted to get across to the young readers and really kind of paint a picture with it. And I just think it came out beautifully. It was like a lovely surprise that I wasn't ready for that I didn't know was going to be in my writing life. And then it just kind of popped out and I was so happy with the finished product. Oh, that's awesome. I kind of know what you mean because when I do illustrations of the saints for the podcast, if it's somebody we have photos of, yeah. there's pressure to get that likeness <laughs> yes. because people know what they look like. Padre Pio, people know what he looked like. There's pressure to get that likeness down. With some of these historical saints, there's a lot more freedom to be creative and just kind of use the symbolism of their story in the illustration. So I very much kind of understand that freedom, you know, that freedom to create that that gives. Yes, yes. I loved it. And just the finished product, like I said, this book was just unexpected in my kind of plans and it just came together so well. So for listeners who aren't familiar, can you just give a brief overview of St. Genevieve, her life and some historical facts that we do know about her. Yeah, so St. Genevieve is a French saint, although she was probably Roman. She was born at the cusp of the fall of the Roman Empire when Rome was transitioning into the early kingdoms of Western Europe. And so she lived in a little village called Nanterre, which is today a suburb of, of Paris. And she was born in the early 5th century, like the 430s probably, and her life wasn't easy. She lost her parents at a young age, and then she had to live through her country being, well, the Roman Empire falling, so her whole political system she lived in collapsed, and then her country was overrun by Frankish barbarians who were pagan. 
So she saw her country kind of devolve. It was a Christian France under the Romans kind of devolved and went back to paganism. And then she entered religious life after having a experience with St. Germanus of Auxerre, who came to preach in her village when she was a girl. And she identified her vocation when she was eight years old, when St. Germanus saw a glowing orb of light over her head at Mass while she was in the congregation. And he talked to her and he, he told her that he thought she had a religious vocation and she thought so too, but obviously she was too young. So she just kind of lived until she was, you know, lived under her parents until she was 16. And then she was able to take vows, but then her parents died and she had to go to Paris. And then she gets involved in all the, she becomes known for her sanctity, although not without opposition, which we'll talk about. But then she gets a reputation for holiness and she gets mixed up with a lot of the political affairs of the time as the kingdom transfers into the power of the Franks. She, she's on speaking terms with multiple Frankish kings. And she becomes kind of like the de facto, in the book I present her as like the de facto ruler of Paris during many years. And from what I could tell, this is accurate. There was a time when there was a lot of anarchy going on around her and the people kind of looked to her as the leader of the city to give them judgments on what they should do. And at one point, they're going to abandon the entire city as an army approaches and she makes the judgment call that they should stay in the city and, and pray instead. And they do and everything turns out okay. That's one reason why I titled this book Matron of Paris, because for so many years, she acted as the the actual mother of the city and really was the the spiritual leader and sometimes the the temporal leader as well, like organizing that she organized the defenses of the city during times of war. She provided for the relief of the city during a siege when they were starving. So she oversaw the construction of what would become an important basilica in the city. So she had a lot of clout, right? She lived to an advanced age, which is very unusual for that period in, in time. Mm. Uh, she lived into her, her 80s. And by that time, the Franks had converted to Christianity, and it was kind of on the cusp of the, the birth of the medieval civilization. So she's a real transitionary saint. When she's young, she's living in the Roman Empire. And by the time she's elderly, we're now in the Middle Ages. So she she spans two worlds, really. Can you imagine seeing all those changes, like living through those changes? Maybe we'll see more, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this was something that really I really tried to think about is what those changes would have been like. And so reading the book, I tried to encapsulate that sense of like, there's a lot of sense of like collapse, you know, and things being reborn and you know, what that would have been like for her. Yeah, that's sort of the theme of the book, this collapse and rebirth. Did you yeah. choose to kind of use that as the, the central theme? It just spoke to me naturally from her life. I mean, in one sense, like her parents died and she had to start over in another city. Uh, that was like a collapse and a rebirth. And then the Roman Empire fell and it got reborn as the Frankish kingdom. That was another rebirth. And then the pagan Franks, they all converted to Christianity. And she went from a pagan civilization to a Christian one. So it was even like a bigger collapse and rebirth. So it was like a series of expanding, like one world dying and another one being born. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of spoke to me about her story. I think it comes through in lots of the plot points in the book.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Well, from your biography, we know you're a historian, but did you have to do special research and specific research for day-to-day life in the early Middle Ages to kind of write this book? Yeah, I did. I I did. I wanted to I wanted to make sure I was as accurate as possible. Like there's a chapter where it describes her going to mass and I did as much research as I could on what the Gallican liturgy looked like in 5th century France at that time. Oh, cool. Because obviously the mass didn't look like it does today. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be as accurate as possible. So a lot of the prayers that you see in the book that were referenced in the mass are from like ancient manuscripts of the Gallican liturgy. And there's other, I had to research the, um, like the geography of Paris, you know, like, so she spends a lot of time at this cathedral, uh, St. Etienne. And I had to say, okay, where is that in the city of Paris? And I found out it's on a little island. <laughs> so I'm glad, you know, I'm glad I, I figured that out. And so in the book, it talks about how when she goes, there's a bridge that she crosses to get to this cathedral. And I wouldn't have known that if I wouldn't have done the geographical research. And sure. so, yeah. so I, I looked at like archaeological sketches of what the city looked like, where the Roman walls were. And so I, I did a ton of research on it to try to make it as, you know, true to the time as I could. Whenever I'm writing nonfiction, you have this sort of point where you have to tell yourself like, okay, I've gathered enough information. Now it's time to sort of produce. Do you have that moment as well when you're writing fiction where he's like, okay, I think I have enough research to to go on now? Yeah, yeah, you do. And at a certain point, you just have to move on and say, okay, this might not be exactly right. But Mm -hmm. like when I wrote the Padre Pio book, okay, I don't want to talk about Padre Pio, but when I wrote the Padre Pio book, I put lots of Italian expressions in the book, right? Mm -hmm. These are expressions that I heard when I was growing up because I came from an Italian family. Mm. My dad had Italian things he'd say, and my grandmother would as well. And so I put them book, and my dad read the book, and then he immediately, he was like, what are you doing? Like, this is, he's like, these people are Italian, and we speak, these phrases are Sicilian, because Sicilian's a different language Uh than Italian, you know? And he's like, what are you doing? That's a Sicilian phrase. They'd never say that in, uh, (laughs) you know, wherever. I was like, oh, man. And so at a certain point, you got to be like, okay, I know there's going to be things that are off, but whatever. You know, it's it, you, as long as I try as hard as I can. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> I'm really fascinated by this time period in France because so a lot of the the historical information I'm using for these saint stories for the podcast, I'm reading these old hagiographies. And it almost seems like in this period in France or what will become France, we'll just call it France as shorthand here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It almost seems like sainthood was contagious. It seems like all these saints knew each other. And I guess like the question is, do you think there were more saints back then? Or does it just seem like maybe because they're extraordinary people and, and, you know, their stories survived more than the stories of common folk that it just seems that way? I really don't know. I've thought of that as well, that there seemed to be just a, uh, like every person that went off and started a convent seemed like they were 
state, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that, that there's a little bit of bias in how we're reading it because these are obviously the stories that have survived. I mean, mm-hmm. people weren't very literate back then and they didn't tend to write down histories unless there was something extraordinary going on. Sure, yeah. So we know very little about common life. I mean, I don't doubt that there was a lot of sanctity because of we're, you know, at the, the formative period of like the Benedictine monasteries springing up and Europe is being converted and Christianity's vibrant and growing. But I also think probably part of it is that these stories just tended to survive better. And so it gives the impression that everybody was saintly. But yes, a lot of these people did know each other, <laughs> yeah. which is which is wild. Yeah, I mentioned to you that uh, our very first episode of this podcast, I was talking about St. Leonard. So uh, Clovis I and uh, mm-hmm. Queen uh, Clotilda made yeah. appearances. Remigius, St. Remigius made an appearance in his story. It just seemed like all these people knew each other. It was really interesting. Yeah. So interesting connection. I put St. Patrick in the book. Yes. <laughs> and this, you'd ask me off the podcast if that was true or just historical license. That was historical license, but based on an interesting connection. So Genevieve discovered her vocation through St. Germanus of Auxerre, mm-hmm. who was one of the most noted, not only bishops, but like he was a trainer of missionaries. People came to his monastery to learn how to be missionaries. So he is the one that discovered Genevieve and told her she had a vocation, right? And he was also the teacher of St. Patrick. So Patrick came to his monastery. And also, it is true that St. Germanus helped provide clergy for the town and for the region during this time when clergy were scarce because of the upheavals. Now, we don't know who the clergy were that Germanus sent, but given that Patrick was one of his students, I thought it would be fun to make Patrick the clergyman that he sends out to Genevieve's village. And so there's this nice cameo where Patrick shows up. And I I changed his name to Patricius so that it wasn't immediately apparent that it was him until he starts talking about his slavery in Ireland. And right. then hopefully the reader's like, oh, that's who it is. Yeah. Yeah, hey, just listen to, um, it was a radio play. I think it was, I'm trying to think who did it. It was a really good radio play on the life of St. Patrick I had just listened to before reading the book. So I was like, ah, as soon as he popped up in the book, I was like. Yeah, and this is an interesting time in Patrick's life because we know a lot about how he got enslaved. And then we know a lot about his mission work in Ireland. But the in-between time is just kind of like, it'll just, the histories will just say, Then he studied for the priesthood and went back to Ireland. Mm -hmm. And that period actually encompassed like 20 years of his life. So for 20 years or so, he was in Gaul studying under St. Germanus and these other people. And it's highly plausible that he might have met St. Genevieve at some point, given her connection to Germanus. But yet she knew St. Remigius. She knew Clovis. There's no direct record of her knowing Clotilda, but it's it's impossible that they didn't know each other given that she knew Clovis so well. Mm-hmm. So she was right in the mix of it and really matronly because by the time Remigius and Clovis and Clotilda and all these people are on the scene, Genevieve, she's from the prior generation, so she's a bit older. Yeah, And that's what you see in the book is that Clotilda's just like a teenage girl when she comes into the sphere of, of Genevieve. And I have Genevieve being like a, a motherly influence on St. Clotilda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could uh, set up a game of uh, with the five degrees of separation with all these different Yeah. See how we could... And I could write a, I could write a early medieval saints expanded universe where like the books all tie into work. <laughs> there you go. And St. Patrick shows up and he's like, Genevieve, I'm putting together a team. You know, like that. <laughs> <laughs> get them all together. 
There's this figure in the book that his name is uh, Desiderius. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Who is an excellent villain, like a really kind of classic villain for a major portion of the book anyway. Yeah. Was he based on a historical figure or did you create him for the book? He's based on a combination of historical figures that were nameless in her actual hagiography. Okay. So in Genevieve's real life, shortly after she came to Paris, she quickly got a reputation as being a wonder worker and a saint. Despite the fact that she was so young, I think she might have not even been 20 years old at the time. And this aroused a lot of hostility from people in the church in Paris. There was kind of like an entrenched ecclesiastical establishment in Paris, and they resented her as an outsider, and they resented the attention she was getting. And the clergy there, now I didn't know anything about the, very little is known about the bishops Mm -hmm. uh, except their names, so a lot of them were just filled in, but the clergy was extremely hostile to her, and I get the impression that the clergy was somewhat corrupt there. The hostility spilled over into a murder attempt where someone tried to drown her, which which really happened, and uh, I portray that in the book where she's attacked when she's a young woman and they try to try to drown her. Now, the histories don't say who these enemies were, but so Desiderius in the book, he is kind of like a rogue priest. He's a, he's a priest who is corrupt. And he's kind of gone over to the dark side and he gets envious of Genevieve and he makes it his mission to destroy her, even to the point of resorting to hiring thugs to try to kill her. Mm-hmm. And then he basically apostatizes from the priesthood entirely to try to become a, a civil leader during the collapse of um, of Roman France. And I won't give away what happens to him, but yes, he's uh, he's a villain for many chapters of the book. Based on real events, I imagine there must have been someone like him behind these things, mm-hmm. which makes it even more amazing what she dealt with. Nuns these days typically don't deal with hostile clergy trying to have them murdered. Right. Yeah. But this is what Genevieve is dealing with as a you know as a twenty year old girl while her kingdom is collapsing. Around yeah. Her, you know. Yeah, I mean, uncertain times indeed. Yeah. So she was a miracle worker which is my favorite thing, I think, to talk about the saints, no matter who I'm talking about, is to get into the the miracles. But her most famous miracle was worked after her death. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, centuries after her death. She died around the... the, There's debate on the day of her death, but she died around 513-ish. And she became the patron of Paris because of everything that she did on behalf of the city of Paris. She was the patron of that city. She was buried in a church that she herself had had built, which later was named the, the Church of St. Genevieve. And so she became the protectress of the city that the Parisians went to in times of need. Now, in the year 1129, there was a plague that broke out in the city. And it was a very serious plague that was killing thousands of people by the day in the city. And the archbishop decided to process with the relics of St. Genevieve through the city and supplicate her help to end the plague. And so they took her relics out and put them in like a in like a box, kind of like an Ark of the Covenant looking box that they held on, uh, on poles, you know. Mm-hmm. And they walked it through the city and they pleaded with her because while she was alive, she had saved the city multiple times. She was responsible for preserving the city of Paris. And so they pleaded with her. And as they marched through the city with this box of her relics, People who touched the box were instantly cured of the plague. And not only that, but as they're walking through the neighborhoods, the plague would cease in the neighborhoods as the box passed by, kind of like a wave 
washing over the city, and the plague was instantly uh, w- was instantly stopped. And this was not some like medieval, like like some legendary pious medieval story. That word of this spread all over Europe. Uh, the Pope sent people up to Paris to investigate and ask what happened. And this was before, by the way, this was fifty years or so before the church had even begun formal canonization procedures mm-hmm. at all. Like this was still before the church had canonization, mm-hmm. but the Pope wanted to investigate. He sent people up to Paris to to take documentation and, and ask what happened. And it was a, it was a bona fide miracle and probably her most, uh, most famous miracle, this wow. uh, miracle of Paris in uh, 1125 or 1129. Yeah. Now, sadly, uh, sadly, and uh, I, I should have put this in my notes, but Genevieve's, this just makes me so mad. Her relics were attacked during the French Revolution. Oh, yeah. They dragged her relics out and destroyed them. Now, pieces of them survived, and there is a fascinating story about the survival of her relics, and I don't remember all the details, so I don't want to say, that, mm-hmm. say it, but as I recall, before her relics were taken, parts of them were saved by somebody then spirited away and then some civil officials hit them for 30 years and that eventually they came back so you can still venerate the relics of Genevieve but I think it's only port like her her parts of her head and but her whole body was destroyed during the the revolution in probably a supreme act of ingratitude yeah wow that's horrible that's <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well we have these figures these saintly figures from the past and I think there's a temptation to look back and go, oh, well that, well, that was then. Neat story. How do you feel Genevieve's story has relevance today? Well, I feel like it has relevance in two ways. There's a couple messages in the book that I hope people take away from it. And the first one is just the collapse and rebirth, the challenging times theme. Genevieve lived in very challenging times, but it didn't stop her from fulfilling her vocation mm-hmm. and from flourishing. You never see Genevieve saying things like, oh, if only the church was more like this, then I'd be better. Or if, if only my country would do this, then I'd have it all together. Mm-hmm. You know, she really believed that no matter what was going on in the world, that didn't change her fundamental obligations to God, right? And to her religious community. And so she has this marvelous ability to flourish in whatever circumstance she is in, regardless of what's going on around her. And we obviously have a lot going on in our country and in the church today. And I think it's tempting to say, like, if only the church was more on point with this message, then my spiritual life would be better, or then we'd have more saints or or whatever. Everything we need to be a saint, we already have. Jesus is already entrusted to us. And the times that we live in are really just the kind of like the building blocks upon which we're supposed to build our sainthood. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have an excuse. Genevieve, if anyone would have had an excuse, it would have been her. <laughs> like, yeah. with all the bad stuff that happened and all the, everything that was going on in her in her world, if anyone had an excuse, just throw up their arms and say, I'm going to just be a brigand and rob people. <laughs> you know, it would have been somebody living in that time, but she didn't. She really was a civilizing force that helped transition her culture in between two worlds. And we're probably all called to do the same thing as we transition to, you know, we're in a post-Christian world now and who knows what the future will be. We can learn from this period that they lived through when their civilization was collapsing. But secondly, on a even bigger level, one of the themes in the book is that you just have to accept what life gives you. You know, this is related to the first one. And Genevieve's not, you know, one thing, I don't remember if we talked about this with Padre Pio, but 
One thing I noticed about saint books is um, they fall into one of two extremes. They either present the saint as so holy and flawless that you can't relate to them, mm-hmm. or they try to like be like, hey guys, he's just like you. He's just a regular dude. He's a slob like you are, you know? Mm-hmm. And you see this in a lot of modern movies where they, they try to be like, oh, this saint actually... He actually has a crisis of faith and he's not even sure if he believes and, you know, mm-hmm. in, in these Hollywood movies about saints. And so I really wanted to portray Genevieve's sanctity and her holiness, but also not negate her real struggles that she must have gone through. And the way I did that was by just focusing on this classic Catholic idea of resignation to divine providence that whatever happens in your life, you need to come to terms with it. It's it's no good just wishing something else would happen. It's no good trying to exchange your cross for other crosses, you know? In the book, there's a scene where uh, Clotilda, when she's just a young girl, she's being betrothed to Clovis, which is a frightful thing because Clovis is a pagan. Yeah. And not only is a pagan, he's a very rough around the edges pagan. <laughs> he's, mm-hmm. he's like a barbarian. You know, he's, he's your quintessential barbarian. And Clotilda is a Christian princess being sent to a strange land to marry him when she's just a teenager. And there's a beautiful scene where Genevieve is sent in to, to console her and they, they have a talk about acceptance of God's will. And and so I think that's another message too, is that, you know, we might not like our circumstances and we don't have to like them, but it says in the gospel that God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. And, uh, you know, if the rain's falling on you, you have to deal with it. You know, you can get an umbrella, you can go indoors, whatever, but you got to deal with your reality, you know? Yep. And that's a big message in the book is dealing with your reality and and kind of not trying to hide from it. And she does. And she has another quality that, that I see in heroes, whether it's uh, Captain America or people that really, you know, real life people and, and these saints and so forth, these people from history that really existed. And that is... A decisiveness that's that's guided by an inner goodness. Now, you know, in the case of St. Genevieve, we can say that goodness came from her relationship to God and, and to the church. I believe that's an important part of any hero, you know, that mm. the willingness to make the hard decision, but guided by goodness. That's such a beautiful way to phrase it. Decisiveness guided by their inner goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that really comes through when you read the lives of any saint is they have this innate ordering towards the good and it it drives what they do and it gives them a decisiveness that maybe for many of us we might be more vacillating right like in the book there's a part where the city of paris they are being starved out during a siege Mm -hmm. and genevieve wants to try to extend an olive branch to the besiegers to spare the life of the people in the city and she says i'm going to go out out of the city and ask them for food and they're like are you insane like a, you're just a, a bunch of nuns, like you're going to be taken away or something. Right. And B, like, why would they give us food, you know? And she does, and she goes out by herself with some nuns without an armed escort, crosses the enemy lines, and she makes an impression on King Childeric of the Franks, and he gives them food, <laughs> and, he, and it's successful. But impressive as that is, what's more impressive is that there was never a doubt in her mind that this was what she should do. Mm-hmm. Once she came to the decision, that was it. She yeah, could, that was it. And then yeah, she she yeah. could commit that to God yeah. and whatever was going to happen was going to happen, but she knew what she had to do. You know, that's what makes the saints always so bold. They're bold in the spirit of holiness, you yeah. know? 
And it's such an attractive characteristic of them. It's what makes them heroes, really. Like you said, yeah. it's the quality of any hero. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And something that's, I mean, it's difficult to do. It's, you know, that's why they're extraordinary. It's difficult to make those hard decisions like that. Yeah, it is. And one thing I, I got from reading Genevieve's story is she was anything but vacillating. She was docile to God, but not before people. <laughs> right, yeah. She was decisive. And, you know, there's a reason why in the whole city of Paris, they look to her as a leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that that impression she made on the Franks lasted many years and through succeeding generations to the point where she was given deference you know, they weren't even Christian. She sort of earned their respect and, and deference. Yeah. And there was situations, and I, I kind of hint at some of these in the book, there were situations where just by the respect that she commanded by her presence and her character, she could go to these leaders of the Franks and say, like, I heard that you took, you know, 20 people captive. I'd like you to release them. Or you took this church building, please give it back. And they would. They held her in reverence. And they had a little bit of a superstitious fear of this holy woman that had wonder-working powers. Sure. They were afraid of what she could do with her, her magic, you know, or what, however they viewed it. But yeah, they they deferred to her uh, tremendously. And just the, the impact that even like that miracle we talked about six centuries after the fact, that when the city was in trouble, they thought, oh, of course, we'll turn to Genevieve. Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned to you when we were talking about Wounds of Love that I didn't feel like, you know, even though it's technically a young adult book, that I didn't feel like you were talking down to me or writing down to me, as the case would be. I felt that even less in Matron of Paris. I think that it's a fabulous book for all ages. I thought it was really a page turner. I was like, really got to it quickly. Love the story. So thank you for writing it. Oh, you're welcome. I really would encourage your listeners to... To get a hold of this one, I mean, I say that about all my books, but, but but yeah, this is my favorite. I poured so much thought and study and like my own kind of insights about the human condition into it. It just came together beautifully and God really blessed the writing. And uh, I just, you know, I would strongly encourage everyone to get it, especially if you're struggling with like the darkness of what's going on in the world and you want something that's kind of uplifting, but not in a Pollyanna way that still manages to to yeah. grapple with the darkness, but still come out on the light side. This is the book for you. Yeah. And great for, like I said, young adult through adults. I think any adult could read this and not, you know, not think it was uh, something juvenile. So that's great. Yeah. So what can we expect next from you? Well, I've got a couple of things I'm working on right now. I have a very large nonfiction book on the church's history with science coming out in the spring of 2024 from Our Sunday Visitor. And I also have a, if if you're looking for a good Catholic history of Ireland, I have something like that coming out in the near future. Oh, cool. And then if you're looking forward to more of these saint stories, more of these uh, historical fiction ones, I am in the preliminary stages of writing one about it. This is the first public announcement of it. Tim. So right here on your program, I'm announcing this. The next one I'm writing will be St. Valentine. Oh, nice. nice. Because there are no books about St. Valentine, you yeah. know, and he's he's such a like a legendary figure. Oh, yeah. yeah. We got this holiday and I wanted to write something that ties together this historical martyr and also these themes of like love and sacrifice and the holiday and everything. So I'm hoping to have that at least Getting it out by Valentine's Day is going to be a, a trick, but right. <laughs> I'm trying to get, get through it. But anyhow, that's what's next. 
Awesome. That's great. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you want to give your website again for our listeners? Yeah. www.philipcampbell.net. That's Philip with two L's. philipcampbell.net. And you can follow me on Facebook. Just look up Philip Campbell author, teacher, and you will find me there. Awesome. And Cruicon Hill Press is your publishing company as well. People can find that. Yeah, cruacanhill.com. C-R-U-A-C-H-A-N hill.com. All right. Phil, thank you so much for coming back to The Flowered Path, and I hope to talk to you again. Yeah, great conversation, Tim. Thank you. St. Genevieve is the patron saint of Paris. Her feast day is January 3rd. Just a reminder about the Etsy shop my wife and I run. If you want to help support The Flowered Path, that's another way you can help. The shop name is Lost Grave, one word. You can find it at etsy.com slash shop slash lost grave. You'll see a bunch of merch from my other podcasts there, Strange Familiars, along with artwork and books I've written on topics related to that show. But you can also find a Flowered Path section there, where I have handmade paracord rosaries, And when I find books and other things related to the topics we cover here, I put those there as well. The Flowered Path t-shirts are also there. We should have restocks of those in all sizes, small through 3XL soon. In fact, they should already be here, but UPS seems to have misplaced the box. So maybe a little prayer to St. Gabriel the Archangel is warranted. As far as the paracord rosaries, I think I finally caught up on all the custom orders I was doing, and we have a few full-sized as well as single-decade pocket rosaries in the Etsy shop now. If you want a custom rosary with a different color cord, or with a certain saint medal attached, just contact me. We can make that happen. Again, the Etsy shop name is Lost Grave. If you type that in at Etsy, it should ask you if you're looking for our shop as well. The sources for the news segment can be found in the show notes for this episode at thefloweredpath.com. News writers for The Flowered Path are patrons and friends of the show, Sarah and Kevin. Please like and subscribe to The Flowered Path wherever you are listening. If you are inclined to leave a nice review, that will help as well. The Flowered Path is on YouTube, so please subscribe to our channel there. You can find it by going to youtube.com slash at sign the Flowered Path 6395. No matter where you're listening, if you like what you hear, please share the episodes with your friends and family and on social media. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook, facebook.com slash thefloweredpath. We're also on Instagram at thefloweredpath, and you can find us on the web at thefloweredpath.com.
Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.